Father in heaven, Lord, we come to this time now in our worship service, and that is exactly what it is, uh, a service where we gather together corporately as the body of Christ, and of course in the context of this local body of Calvary Bible Church to bring you worship, to bring you honor, to bring you glory, to exalt the name of your son Jesus to learn from your word, Father, and to apply that word to our lives. We thank you for it. We thank you, God, that you give us your word. We thank you that there is nothing gray about, Lord, your plan of redemption, salvation, how we are to live our our lives in light of that. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who paid the price for our sins, who died on the cross to take our place, who would then, Lord, resurrect from the dead three days later to reign victoriously from his throne with you in your heavenly kingdom until he would return again, Father, and bring us all home to your forever eternal kingdom. We pray these things right now, Lord, in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Back in 1985, there was a group formed known as the Jesus Seminar. And between 1985 and 1996, the, the group took on a special project to attempt to find what they termed the historical Jesus. And when the project was done, they formulated their results into two books, The Five Gospels that came out in 1993 and The Acts of Jesus in 1998. The point of this group? To try and come up with the most accurate picture of who Jesus really was, historically speaking. Now, that already kind of tells you a presupposition of the group that most, if not all, presumed that the Jesus of the Bible was not a true and accurate picture of the historical Jesus. In fact, membership was open to all persons with academic credentials, whatever those might be, and a willingness to suspend personal religious convictions in order to consider matters on the basis of historical evidence alone. The group met twice a year with an average of 30 to 40 people at each gathering. And here's what they did. Are you ready for this? They first went through all of the sayings of Jesus from the scriptures. They would talk about them. And then they used colored marbles to vote individually on whether they thought the given saying actually came out of Jesus's mouth or not. So a red marble meant a high likelihood of authenticity. A pink one meant that it was possible, but with some uncertainty. A gray one meant unlikely, but they weren't willing to say no. And black meant no likelihood. Guess what they found? Well, in the seminar's findings of the Gospel of Mark, they came to the conclusion that the Gospel of Mark contained only one red saying. And 234 black ones. John contained, they deemed, no red sayings and only one pink with 134 
black. Matthew and Luke with 11 and 14 red sayings respectively fared only slightly better. The results were thus overwhelmingly negative. Most of the sayings were deemed or most of the sayings that were deemed authentic furthermore tended to be more general moral or philosophical observations that were not particularly religious. They then went through and did the exact same thing with all of Jesus' deeds. All of his deeds, including all of his miracles. Guess what? Similar results. And you think, what a farce. What a farce. The audacity to, to try and, and reduce God's written word to a system where people would get to pick and choose what they thought was real and what was made up and what was in error and, and they would use colored marbles to do it. Friends, it seems that the word of God has always been on trial. And though this took place back in the Late 80s, early 90s, there have always been those that have sought to discredit the word of God, including even many today, and, and some even in what we would call the quote-unquote evangelical church. It's not enough to say that you're an evangelical church nowadays. Nowadays, we have to say we are a Bible-believing evangelical church. Isn't that silly? Well, this morning, as we return to our text of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are going to talk this morning about the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and all-sufficient Word of God. So to to kind of get us going here, please go ahead and and turn first to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Where we have been looking at the section of text we've been calling Fulfilling the Great Commission. Fulfilling the Great Commission. And so far, back in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 2, we've seen that the the sharing of the gospel requires boldness. That the sharing of the gospel requires you to please God rather than men. That the sharing of the gospel can never come from things like error, impurity, deceit, flattering speech, greed, glory for men, or even a heavy-handed authority. And then we looked at verses 7 to 12 last week. Excuse me. Yes, where we learn that the gospel should be shared with a true care and concern, with a willingness to back up our words with actions, without extra burdens, that would be no strings attached, with excellent behavior and with an intended purpose. So let's go ahead and and stand for just a moment here as we continue on and read our text this morning. It's, um, It's one simple verse, verse 13. And I would tell you that the immediate context is... Walking in a manner worthy of God, the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. This is, of course, the word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. This one verse here that we will be spending the rest of our time with here this morning, it tells us a few things. Really quick, 
let me interject here. There was there was a there was a time, there was a time where I was I was working on on a on a film set, and a uh, a friend of mine, a co-star, uh, said, "Hey, let's uh, you want to go out to lunch?" I said, "Yeah, sure, let's go out to lunch." So we went out to lunch, and we're sitting across from each other in this uh, booth, and uh, he was kind of real high energy. Now, I mean, seriously, if you can imagine, higher energy than me. And he was kind of that in-your-face kind of guy, you know, just like gets real up close and he's high energy and everything. So we sit down at lunch and he goes, so, are you a Christian? And I was like, whoa, dude, quiet down, you know, ixnay on the Istrian. I mean, just, you know, well, we could talk about that privately, but that's not something that you, you just kind of blurt out here over lunch, you know, in a public setting, all that stuff, right? And, 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 and of course, my pat answer was, well, well yeah, sure, of course, uh, let's get on to something else here. Here's the thing. I wasn't really a Christian. I thought I was. I thought I was. But what that question caused me to do in that moment and then for the next, say, few years after that was to question, what am I? Am I indeed a Christian? What do I believe? And, and I would say that this is what kind of this opportunity we're taking this morning. What do we believe about the word of God? What do you as an individual believe about the word of God? And what do we collectively believe about the word of God? And, and I would even go so far as to say some of you might be like, oh, gosh, as I go through this, tell me something I don't know, Pastor Jay, you know, really. But even if you've known this and you've heard this time and time again, oh, may it still bless your soul. May it encourage you to stand firm all the more. Stand strong in what you believe and know to be true about the word of God. Amen. Good. So, yes, this verse here that we are going to be spending the rest of our time this morning, it tells us a few things. We have Paul and Silas and Timothy who were constantly, that is, permanently, without ceasing, that's the definition of the Greek word there, thanking God that the Thessalonians received the word of God which you heard from us. And first off, the Thessalonians heard the gospel message from Paul and company here who were fulfilling, frankly, Isaiah 52, 7, which says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, what is implied in this receiving is that after they heard the gospel message, they repented of their sins and they believed in the message. As Jesus said in the gospel of Mark, while he was, quote, preaching the gospel of God in Galilee, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, end quote. In other words, the Thessalonians got saved, didn't they? They received salvation, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with Christ. And furthermore, and what is really, truly remarkable about this is what we see next in verse 13. When Paul writes, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now, maybe you remember when I mentioned last week that there was something the Thessalonians didn't have back then. There was something they weren't given back then. Remember what it was? Bibles, right? Yeah, they didn't have Bibles back then. We didn't, we didn't have this awesome Gideon ministry in full swing to get them the word of God because the word of God was in process. It was in process of being 
written down. So at the time when Paul was doing his missionary missionary journeys, he was verbally sharing with them the word of God. He was preaching the word publicly and from house to house, as we see in Acts 20, verse 20. And no doubt Paul had things that he had written down and 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 maybe even carried with him and that he would carry certain parchments with him. But but he wasn't showing up like the Gideons with boxes of Bibles hot off the press and, and handing them out. That's not the way it was working back then. So again, the fact that the Thessalonians accepted the gospel message from Paul, Silas, Timothy's mouths, and not just accepted their words that that they made up for kind of their own purposes or, or reasons, but that they accepted their words as God's very own words. Think about how incredible that is. That is amazing. I mean, when you think about all the the man-made religions that are out there in the world and and, and where the message of the religion was invented or even concocted by some man or even some woman, for Islam, it was Muhammad. Buddhism, it was Siddhartha Gautama. For Mormonism, it was Joseph Smith. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, it was Charles Taze Russell. You had Mary Baker Eddy and Ellen G. White for Christian Science and Seventh-day Adventists, respectively. And, of course, the list goes on. Just think of, think of how many people have been duped because they accepted the words and teachings of people. People like these. You say, well, yeah, okay, but what's the difference? What's the difference? I mean, Paul's a man, like you said. He's not passing out Bibles. He and the others show up. They start sharing the, the message. Why should they be believed? Well, because of what our text says, that the message really is the word of God. So, friends, that's our our presupposition this morning. There's your your five dollar theological word presupposition. It just means that this morning we are starting from the standpoint that we believe this to be the very word of God. The Bible is the Holy Scriptures, God's word. So what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked because I want to show you this morning five results, five results of the Bible being the word of God so that you can be confident, not just where you stand again as an individual, but we where we stand corporately and collectively as Calvary Bible Church regarding the word of God. And the first thing is this, the word of God is inspired The word of God is inspired. This is to say we believe that the word of God in its entirety, 100% is the inspired word of the Lord. Second Timothy three verse uh, chapter three, verse 16 tells us all scripture is inspired by God. And just first notice Paul's use of the word all there. What does this include? Well, What would Paul have understood the scriptures to be at that time when he was writing this? The Old Testament, you say, right? Well, yes, most certainly. So what about the Gospels? And and what, what Paul and the other writers were writing down during this New Testament period? Well, yes and yes. You see, Paul knew that he was preaching and teaching divine revelation because he received it directly from God himself. We read this, Paul's writing, For I would have you know, brethren, 
that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 to 12. And Jesus' disciples, Jesus' disciples believed that what he was saying was Holy Scripture, as attested by John right at the beginning of his gospel when he says, in the beginning was what? The Word. He understood Jesus as the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, then back in 2 Timothy 3, 16, we also read all Scripture was, or is, excuse me, is inspired by God. The literal Greek translation there is that it is God breathed God breathed every word of scripture is God breathed this is why we call them the holy scriptures because they come directly from God through the Holy Spirit and we have a another fancy name for this another here's your other five dollar words a couple of words this morning it's called verbal plenary inspiration which simply means that every word that is noun, verb, adjective, what have you, every letter, every stroke, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, is absolutely indeed inspired. And this also refers to the fact that words, then placed in a specific grammatical fashion, are also what's inspired, not ideas. In other words, the scripture is not open for self-interpretation or some kind of self-allegorical understanding. Lastly, plenary is a word that means whole, complete. Whole or complete. Now here's a good uh, concise definition that, uh, that I found uh, from Nelson's New Christian Dictionary. It says this, quote, Inspiration is the process and result of the special work of the Holy Spirit by which the writers of the Scriptures were enabled faithfully to record the revelation of God. Inspiration is verbal in that it manifests in text expressed solely in words. It is plenary because it extends to the whole production, or excuse me, it it extends to the production of the whole of Scripture, not merely parts of of it and it is inerrant in that it is totally free from error and totally true in all that it affirms end quote we'll get to the inerrancy part in just a sec now yes well you might have a question at this point the question might be okay wait a minute because whenever whenever i talk to an unbeliever about the bible being god's written word what do they say they say well yeah but that was just written by a bunch of people it's just written by a bunch of people You know, human beings, and humans certainly aren't perfect. Yes, God did use human authors to write it, didn't he? But humans, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved or literally carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So this doesn't just include Old Testament prophecies. 
But because of who Peter is as an apostle, we understand this to refer to the whole of Scripture. Old Testament plus all that had already been written as the New Testament as, as well as any that was still yet to come. Now, one reason is that prophecy doesn't just refer to a foretelling of the future, but it can include any of God's written word. <clears throat> Excuse me there, I guess I'm going through puberty. Like, whoa, man, what, where'd that come from? <laughs> it can include any of God's written word, old or new, future or for that day. And in addition, Jesus, as God, acknowledged that not just the Old Testament was Scripture, but also everything that He, Jesus, was preaching and teaching. And then lastly, in 2 Peter 3, 15-16, Peter acknowledges that the letters of Paul, even, up to this point, were understood as Holy Scripture. And what is, you know, so interesting, and again, just mind-boggling, amazing, is that you have these, these 40 men who wrote in three different languages from multiple continents, who came from many different backgrounds over a period of 1,600 years. And some were kings, and some were prophets, and and some were soldiers and herdsmen. I like this one. Fishermen, a doctor. Some were well-educated and some were not. But in so doing, God allowed for their own unique personalities... And writing styles to come through. And yet all of this, with all of this, the word of God is still amazingly uniform and without contradiction in its teaching. Friends, whatever so-called contradictions anyone has ever raised is not a problem with God or the writers. It is a problem with us. It's a problem with, with proper interpretation or translation. It is us who have misunderstood, not those biblical writers. And what is again so incredible about God doing it this way is that these authors understood and believed that what they were writing down was indeed the very words of God. They understood this. And they wrote down these words without apology, without self-consciousness, or any disclaimers. And this is attested to the fact that biblical writers never said things like this. Now, uh, I know this sounds really far-fetched and even, you know, crazy, but uh, (laughs) I spent three days and nights in the belly of a fish. Or, 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 I... I know that this might be unbelievable and even absurd, but I'm telling you, Lazarus came out of that tomb. He was dead, but he was alive. They never put any of those things in in the context of any of their writings. They were absolutely convinced that what they were writing was indeed true. In fact, biblical scholar Henry Morris estimates that there are some 2,600 claims in the Old Testament alone from biblical authors that were, that, that were indeed writing the very words of God, that they understood they were writing the very words of God. Secondly, God's word is inerrant. Inerrant. Errant. What does that mean? Inerrancy. Well, we'll go to another source. The concise Oxford English Dictionary defines an errant as 
incapable of being wrong. I like that. Not just not wrong, but incapable of being wrong. Webster says exempt from error. Both are fine definitions, meaning no error. So what does it mean then when we refer to the doctrine of inerrancy? Noted theologian Paul Feinberg in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines biblical inerrancy as, quote, the view that the Bible in its, now this is key, original manuscripts and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in all it affirms, whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or to the social, physical, or life sciences, end quote. In other words, everything, everything in this book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is 100% without error. It is true and never false. It is accurate and infallible. It is always authoritative and trustworthy. And of course, the easiest way to understand this is, is by what we call the internal testimony of the Bible. In other words, the Bible simply tells us this, right? Uh, Psalm 119, verses one, uh, verse 160, the sum of your word is what? Truth. Truth. Um, Proverbs 30 and verse 5, every word of God is tested. Remember, God is a God who cannot lie. We see this specifically in Numbers 23, 19, Titus 1, 2, Hebrews 6, 18. Therefore, everything about God is truth. In addition, we have what we call external testimony, things outside, such as prophecies that have come true. Probably one of the most notable is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we could say that inerrancy could be characterized as truthfulness, truthfulness. John 17 and verse 17, Jesus said, to the Father in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Okay, but you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Another question, Pastor Jay, because isn't it true that there could be things like scribal errors or, or, or printing errors, you know, in the Bible? Yes, but that's why we refer back to the original manuscripts, a.k.a. original autographs that actual time and moment when that author was handwriting these words down on whatever particular piece of parchment they had it's those that are without error now that being said we have thousands upon thousands of very early manuscripts and what we call manuscript fragments that actually give us a bible with less than two percent of error. And we know that small minor errors have crept into the scriptures because those who have copied the scriptures over the years going way way back they are not inspired. Those copyists and scribes. But the errors were easy to fix and none of them affected any significant doctrine of scripture. So for all intents and purposes, we can say with, with absolute confidence and conviction that our modern Bible translations are indeed the inerrant word of God. Thirdly, God's word 
is infallible. It's infallible. And this simply means that because the Bible was inspired by God and without error, it is unfailing in its overall purpose of revealing God, God's, revealing God and his plan of salvation to the world. Another way to put it is that God's word is altogether unfailing in that it is all we need for life and godliness. And as we like to say, it's all we need for faith and the practicing of that faith. It is completely trustworthy for salvation as well as sanctification. It means all of God's promises will indeed come to pass. His kingdom will be done. It will come and all of his will will be done. Excuse me, getting that backwards. But going back to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, just for a moment, we read again, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Okay, what's it profitable for, Paul? It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You might remember what David said uh, about the word of God back in Psalm 19, verses 7 and 9, where he he writes that the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. And the judgments of the Lord are true. Now this all being said, we understand then that God, being a perfect, holy, completely truthful God who cannot lie could therefore only inspire perfect, holy, true writings that could have no possibility of failing. Therefore, they would have to be completely trustworthy. Fourth, God's word is authoritative. It is authoritative. Here's the reasoning. If the Bible is indeed inerrant in all of its parts, inspired by God, infallible or unfailing in its totality, then we would have to agree that it must also be completely authoritative. It has to be our highest standard of authority. This means it is our final authority for everything pertaining to life and godliness. It is what teaches us about God as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It teaches us about um, His plan of redemption as well as everything that we would need to know in order to live a life that would indeed be pleasing to Him and bring glory and honor and praise to Him. We see in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 32, Luke writes, And He, Jesus, came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and He was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Authority. In Mark chapter 1, verse 27, it says they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Titus chapter 2, and verse 15 says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's Paul speaking to Titus, which then tells us that even us who share God's word can do so with all authority. 
Because it is God's word. It's not the word of man. It's not our word. It's his word. That God's word is authoritative over our lives is an area that, frankly, many rebel against today. I guess they always have, right? But we do live in this truth is relative society. Truth is whatever you want it to be, whatever you think it to be, what, whatever it means to you. The Bible is whatever it means to you. People want to make their own rules. They do not want to submit themselves to authority. What's funny about that is, of course, people submit themselves to authorities all the time in life, even currently, right? But especially they don't want to submit themselves to God and his word. So, in summary, if the Bible is inerrant in all of its parts and inspired by a perfect, all-truthful God and is infallible, unfailing in its totality, then it has to be. It has to be the ultimate authority for all of God's creation. Fifth, and lastly this morning, the Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. Oh, this one should just press into our hearts and, and encourage us greatly. Verse 13, back in our text, Paul says, which also performs its work in you who believe. The Word of God will work in who? It will work in the lives of believers. Because when you believe, you are given the very Spirit of God to live and dwell in you and to enlighten to us the Word of God. Turn for just a moment to, uh, excuse me, Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. Keep your, you can keep your thing there, First Thessalonians. But in Second Peter chapter 1, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, right there at the beginning. Paul writes, excuse me, Peter writes, just so used to saying Paul writes all the time, right? Because he wrote most of the New Testament. Peter writes, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And that true knowledge of him going back to God. His divine power going back to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this divine power comes to us through the true knowledge of God. Well, where do we get this true knowledge of God and of his son Jesus from the word of God, of course. And, and what does his divine power through his word, and we find out in other places in scripture, the Holy Spirit, what does that grant us? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Or as we said earlier, we like to say faith and the practicing of that faith. In other words, everything for life as a believer and, and, and godliness being faith in action. That is what this this is good for that is this power that we that we have from God himself. Again, so now we're going to go back to uh, 2 Timothy. I've quoted this a couple of times, but go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. So we want to just uh, look at this a, a, a little more closely. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 to 17. 
where we see Paul write to Timothy, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's, there's, there's six very easy to identify truths here about um, that these verses demonstrate or how they demonstrate the sufficiency of scripture. Now, one, the scripture comes from God. We've already dealt with that, right? Uh, Suffice it to say, God used men, including their own personalities and writing styles, to write down his very own perfect word. If the scripture is inspired by God, then as we said earlier, it is inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and of course, all sufficient. Secondly, in this couple of verses, we see that it's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for teaching, Profitable doesn't mean just it's okay. It's useful. It's helpful. It's advantageous. And what is it profitable for? As we just said, teaching, which is to say doctrine. Doctrine. It tells you everything you need to know about God. How to be saved from your sins. How to live a God-honoring life. And everything you need to know about your future life. Our 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 daughter Gigi is in the throes of of studying, you know, for her to get her license, her permit, and her license, and so it involves all of that time of of, of going through and and learning all that she needs to learn from her, uh, you know, online driving courses, etc., so that then you can take that test and then you can know what you need to know so that you can drive, so you can drive a car. Uh, our other daughter is going through the chemistry route right now. And, and uh, of course, same thing. She is learning and learning and learning. Why? So she can put that to use and, uh, and, and receive her diploma. So, yes, we, um, we understand that God's word is profitable, though, for us, spiritually speaking, to teach us. To teach us doctrine, which then translates into life application. Next, we see that it's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for reproof. Reproof also being rebuking or convicting. In other words, the word of God convicts us of our sin. It points your sin out to you. And I know, and the first to say, that's not always a very fun thing, is it? To be confronted and convicted over our sin. But it is absolutely necessary if we want to to grow in our Christian walks. If we want to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven and bringing glory to God. Pain is one of those things where it it, it can be a very good thing, right? In that it it lets us know that something in our body is, is wrong. Something is wrong so that hopefully it can be corrected. I'm using all my kids this morning. They always tell you, be very careful how you use your family as uh, things. Uh, but uh, I think these are okay. But when Jack was seven, he fell and he ruptured his spleen. And it caused internal bleeding. I had just started seminary. We were here at Calvary Bible Church. But if the boy didn't have pain, because we didn't know that anything real serious was wrong. So we all said goodnight and put him in his bed kind of thing. And he just was writhing, writhing in pain and pain. If he didn't have the pain, I wouldn't have known that there was anything wrong. And I wouldn't have taken him or called the, the, to, to the emergency room and and who knows then things would have obviously gotten incredibly worse so though pain is not necessarily fun it is extremely beneficial and even life-saving so is the reproof and conviction of our sin from scripture 
Next, it's also profitable for correction. Correction. Meaning once you've been convicted of your sin, true repentance means that you need to do something about it. You can't just wallow there in your sin. My wife loves to use this analogy with teaching the kids when they were younger about uh, being a, a beanbag versus being a basketball, right? So you're, you're sin, you're the beanbag. The beanbag goes splat and what's it do? It just stays on the floor in your sin. We wallow in our sin. Don't be like a beanbag. Be like a basketball. Hit the ground and pop back up with repentance, right? That's, that's what we need to do. But the word of God offers correction. It... it it calls, us, um, it calls us renewing or making our minds new, as well as uh, this concept we see from Paul's writings of putting off and putting on. In Romans 12 and verse 2, we read, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you... Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's that basic out with the old, in with the new principle. We need to put off sin. We need to root it out. We need to get rid of it. But we also need to put something good and appropriate in its place. It's like a cavity, right? Bacteria, sugar left to its own devices is going to cause a a cavity in your, in your teeth, and if left unchecked, it's going to just continue to decay, and it's going to bring about other problems, and there could be pain, and there could be root canals, and there could be extraction of the tooth, whatever. But once the cavity's been discovered, <coughs> that's that reproof and conviction part, then the dentist can, can get in there and, and drill it out a little bit, clean it out, get rid of the decay, but then he's got to put something back in its place to keep the decay from returning. So he fills it, doesn't he? It used to be back in the day, oh, silver or gold, what have you. Now it's usually a composite, you know, resin that's even the same color as the teeth. But, but this gives us the best odds of the decay not returning. And it's the same way with our sin, friends. Sin left unchecked will cause a cavity which, if not dealt with, will cause further decay and, and consequences. And at this point, yes, we need to Put off and put on. We need to confess the sin. Get rid of it. Repent of it. Replace it with something profitable that will help protect us from that sin not coming back. And lastly, it's profitable for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. Meaning God's word is good for educating and instructing for what? Sports? Pickleball? Basket weaving? No, in righteousness. That which is right. Okay, right by whose standard? Well, God's, of course. God's word is profitable for educating and instructing you so that you know what to do in terms of being what's right in God's eyes, according to God's standard. How to live righteously with holiness through obedience. So why would someone want to be trained in righteousness? Well, how about why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't you? Certainly as a believer, right? I mean, consider the gospel and what God has done that you and I are sinners through and through. We have become decayed and we have become dead 
in our trespasses and sins. And of course, we need to be made alive. We need to be forgiven of our sins. We need to to have the Lord Jesus Christ, as he did, die in our place to be the savior of our sins, to take our sin upon himself, to be that substitute for us that we need because the consequences for our sin is death, it is hell, it is the lake of fire. But as I say, I think every time in my my gospel message, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. That if we would put our faith and trust, all of our hope in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, and not just that he stayed dead up there on the cross, because what good would a dead Savior be? No, he needs to be an alive Savior. He needs to be a a raised from the dead, resurrected Savior. He needs to be a Savior who is at the right hand of the Father right now, alive and well, waiting to return. This is the gospel, friends. This is what you need to believe in right now, this very moment before you leave here this morning, that Jesus died for you. That indeed he loves you and wants you to repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in him. Now look, if you don't have a desire towards righteousness as a believer, or let's just back up and say, if you don't have a desire for righteousness and righteous living, well then there's two basic conclusions that that you would have to come to. One, that you are a believer, but you're a believer in sin. You're a believer in sin and you need to repent. Or secondly, you're not truly a believer at all. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Oh, friends, I beg of you. I plead of you. If that might be you this morning, test yourselves. Test yourselves and see if you are in the faith. That Jesus Christ is in you. Maybe you would need to repent of sin, but maybe you need to repent of sin's past, present, future, and put that faith initially into the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior this morning. Because there will come a day, friends, when you will stand before God to give an account for the time He gave you, and your heavenly rewards will be based on your righteous and godly living. It's the same reason why any of us wants to say, please our parents, a son or a daughter who looks up to them and and loves them and and recognizes the the many, many good things that the parents do for them and, and, and earnestly seeks the parents' approval. Yet the righteousness that goes along with our sanctification does not magically come about to us, but we must train for it. Using the word of God, you must, as the scripture teaches us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, we understand it is God who saves, it is God who sanctifies. But now in the sanctification process, we have this part that we play. In 1 Timothy 4, 6, Paul encourages Timothy to be nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. We have to... Be nourished on it by reading it, by certainly praying, by listening to the word of God preached and taught. And then in the next verse of that, 1 Timothy 4, 6, or or, uh, shortly thereafter, excuse me, he says in verse 12, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
This is what we are commanded to do to discipline ourselves for this purpose. I mean, think about an athlete, right? An athlete can't expect to get better at their sport if they don't do everything they can to discipline themselves for the playing of that sport, especially in like the context of an Olympic athlete. And you think of all the training that they have to do and all the, you know, watching their diet and what they eat and, and et cetera, et cetera, and all of these things that have to occur. They have to diligently train and hopefully along with all the books and videos that they might watch, they, they have some good coaches and mentors along the way that help them that they listen to. That is how then they get better. That is how they grow and mature in that sport to where they can win a prize. Well, there's a result for those who trust in the sufficiency of Scripture as they let the Scripture teach and instruct them, convict them of their sin. Bring about repentance, that putting off, that putting on, and train them in righteousness. And it's our last point this morning. It makes one adequate and equipped for good works here. That's back in verse 17 of that um, our first Timothy passage, excuse me, second Timothy passage. So that the man of God, we could say person of God, may be adequate, meaning again, completely qualified, equipped for every good work. If you were if you were to get a, a job as a lifeguard, summer job there, lifeguard of a pool, then you would have to go through all kinds of training, wouldn't you? So that you would be able to perform the necessary duties of being a lifeguard. That especially in the area of rescuing somebody, if that's what was called for, or saving somebody's life, administering first aid or CPR or what have you. Well, think about it. It's the same as way being as a Christian. God has created you. For many purposes that you need to be equipped for and ready to handle, one of which is to do good works for his glory. <laughs> That's what we're called to do. Just a couple of last verses here on the sufficiency of Scripture. We see from Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, when he says, not that we are adequate, sufficient, in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. Romans 1.16 where he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So God's word is all sufficient for the gospel message. In Hebrews 4.12, love this one. For the word of God is living and Active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. <sighs> both good and bad, right? Positive and negative. So what does this all mean for you and I today? Well, here's something. Like I said at the beginning, I, I want us all to be absolutely firmly convinced about the Word of God and what exactly the Word of God is and what it is to us, again, as individuals and what it is to us as Calvary Bible Church. But here's something else. Because, friends, it can't be stated more emphatically that the Word of God is constantly under fire and where the Scripture is attacked, we are called to defend it. We are called to defend it. Jude appealed the brethren to, quote, earnestly contend for the faith. 
Paul exhorted Timothy to guard what has been entrusted to you and then charged him from from 2 Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So I'm going to close here with a quote from, uh, from Charles Spurgeon from a sermon of his called Christ and His Co-Workers. It's a sermon on Mark chapter 16, verse 20. It was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London on June 10th, 1886. And he says this, Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. And there he is in the cage. And here come all of the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feeling that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Let the gospel out. Never mind, he said, about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. This was how Christ's first disciples worked. They preached Jesus Christ wherever they went. They did not stop to apologize, but boldly bore their witness concerning him. End quote. Friends, we have the inspired word of God. We have the inerrant word of God. We have the infallible, therefore unfailing word of God. We have the authority of the word of God. We have the sufficient word of God. Now, all we have to do, folks, is really let the lion out. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for what you have shown us from your word. And Lord, may we stand bold. May we stand firm in your word of truth, God. May we take all of these things to heart. May we be refreshed by them. May we be reminded of them. May we seek to constantly apply them to our lives as, again, individuals, as families, but as as church body members, Lord, all for your glory, Father. May we let the lion out. May Christ have his way with his gospel out there in the world that we would be instruments in this. Oh, praise you and give you glory, Lord. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.